Hey friend, welcome back here to the Semi-Seminary, and here we are another week, another episode of our Bible study series. We like to call the Bible study of, I'm sorry, the Bible st- Hey friends, welcome back here to the Semi-Seminary, and here we are another week, another episode of our Bible study series. We call the Bible for Grown-Ups. We are now in part two of our look at the book of Philippians, written by the Apostle Paul while he was chained up in house arrest in Rome, written, written to the church in Philippi. And tonight we're going to look at the importance of our attitude on how we can live and can we actually change our mind enough where we could change our lives that we might live like Christ. That's what we're going to be confronting tonight, friend. I'll see you on the other side. I'm so happy to have you guys back for another week. Uh, This is part two in a study series that we're looking at the book of Philippians. It's written by the Apostle Paul. And what we're doing in these four weeks is we're not necessarily going line by line, verse by verse, any, anything like that. But what we are doing is looking at some high points that we find in this letter and asking God uh, to use his word to change our perspective on how we should live our lives. Uh, let me give you an example. I thought, um, at least growing up for sure, I thought that success was uh, defined by accomplishing, conquering, uh, moving forward in whatever area. Then one day, <clears throat> I read Pastor John Maxwell's definition of success, and it, it really changed, <laughs> changed my perspective. And uh, Pastor Maxwell says, success is when those who know you best love and respect you the most. How we value our lives can be done not by who we are, what we do, what we've accomplished, but rather by looking at those people in our lives that know us best, if they're the ones that love and respect us the most. That's a pretty good definition of success, at least one I think that has personal integrity. So what I want to do this evening is is talk to you about um, using God's word about a different way of thinking. That's why tonight uh, our little talk here is entitled Mind Shift. We're going to try to make some shifts in our thinking. Now, let me just uh, catch everybody up very quickly. Context of the book of Philippians, because the context of this letter written to this church in a place called Philippi, the Philippians, The context is super important. So if you missed last week, uh, the Philippian letter is a letter uh, or an epistle written by the Apostle Paul. Again, he's writing it to a church of people in a place called Philippi. Now, uh, the Apostle Paul started this church in about 52 AD. And we did this last week. So if we just kind of, in our mind, think, okay, Jesus... If he was born somewhere around zero, and however, based on that, maybe he died in 30. Some people say he died in 33. First century, this is 52 AD, okay? 52 AD, a couple decades after the resurrection. Paul is in Asia Minor, going all the way, ending up in Rome, preaching the gospel and starting churches. One of the churches he starts is this church in Philippi. Uh, and a lot of people believe that the Philippian church is actually probably his 
uh, favorite church. I'll bring up a little piece of literary criticism as evidence later that a lot of people hang their hat on um, with that opinion, that, that this was, these people were different than the other churches. This was his favorite. He actually genuinely loved, I think, this church. And uh, the context of the letter is that they had sent him a financial gift. And so uh, what he's done is basically write a thank you letter. Uh, one commentary describes the Philippian letter as an ancient thank you note. And we also recall that there's numerous discussions in this letter about joy. And we recall the context that Paul is writing this letter about joy to his favorite church, remembering he's doing so from a Roman prison. He's chained to Roman guards, four of whom are assigned to him and serve six-hour shifts, constantly chained to Paul whilst he was waiting for the Roman government to decide what they were going to do with Paul, whether they were going to execute him or not. It's in this context that Paul writes this letter of joy. We'll also find, and it makes us wonder, how could you be so joyous in this context, in this situation? Well, there's also about 16 different references to uh, your mind, your thinking, or your attitude in this letter. And those two things are obviously going to go hand in hand. You're going to see him talk about the fact that how you think your attitude is going to determine who you will become. And so today, what I'd like to do is talk about a different way of thinking, a changed perspective. Let's go ahead and begin reading scripture here at the beginning of letter of chapter two of the letter. And Paul writing here, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if you have any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with his spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then, right? And here's our word from last week. Then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Now, again, we also mentioned last week that the church to whom he's writing, these Christians in Philippi, there were, there were some divisions amongst their church. And he's encouraging them to be like-minded about the same things. Now, we're going to get, <coughs> pardon me, <clears throat> we're going to get a little bit more in depth uh, as we continue on in this study. But the, just to let you know, essentially what the main division was amongst the church of Philippi um, is the same one that's happening in the Galatian church. And that is, uh, Paul has come along and taught these people Christianity from a Gentile perspective. Not people that were traditionally Jewish that then, what you might say, convert to Christianity or become Jewish people who believe that Christ is Jesus of Nazareth, is the Messiah Christ fulfilled in Jewish scripture, right? There are lots of early Christians that are Jewish people that they don't become Christians. They just see Jesus as the fulfillment of Hebrew scripture. That's different than Gentile Christians 
who don't come from a Jewish background and they're taught firstly Christianity. So you can kind of see the difference in the way Paul's teaching Christianity versus, and you might like, I can't see a difference, but I'll explain, versus the way Peter is preaching Christianity to these people. Peter is teaching from the Jewish perspective. So Peter is trying to make people Jewish Christians, not just Christians. And so whenever Paul, Peter, sorry, comes in and preaches about Christianity, he's also going to tell you, adult men, that you're going to have to do something you probably didn't expect when you decided to sign up for Christianity, and that's be like every other good Jewish uh, boy, and that is get circumcised. And Paul says, <laughs> wrong. Circumcision isn't what provides salvation to the Christian. It's faith in Jesus Christ. It's a circumcision of the heart. It's not this other thing to which a lot of Philippian men probably went, right? But um, Paul is saying, look, if you have to do these things physically, like, for instance, things to your body, then Jesus died on the cross for nothing. There's, there's no spiritual power in the cross if your salvation comes from this physical act that you're, that you're performing, right? If, 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 if that's what's required for salvation, Paul will actually say, then Christ died for nothing. Well, that's ridiculous to Paul. So we're going to get a little bit more into that discussion as the letter goes on, but that's what the division between the members of the church, that's what Paul is talking about when he talks about them being of different mind. Uh, and if you're taking notes, the little Greek word translated as like-minded is one that I can't, I can't pronounce any of them, but this one I can't even come close to pronouncing, so I'm not even going to try. Um, oh, sorry, no, that's a different one coming up. There's another word coming up that I do not know how to even begin. But this word, like-minded, uh, is the word phrono. Phrono. And phrono means to set your affections upon. It means to desire with a single mind. When you fall in love with your spouse, phrono, you've, you've focused your affection on this thing. And Paul is saying, I want you guys to focus your affection, focus your attitude, focus your thoughts on these things because Paul knows something. He knows that as you think, you will become, right? And if we look at Scripture, there are incredible examples of how important and how powerful our thoughts are and our minds are to our actions. Let me uh, rattle just a few of these off, just kind of shotgun style. Um, James says... That a double-minded person is unstable in all that they do. Paul says, I want you to be like-minded or single-minded. Paul told the Romans in his letter to the Roman church, he said, do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed not by uh, how you look in the mirror or what you wear or what kind of food you eat. You're transformed by the renewing of your mind. 
Paul told the Corinthians to take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. And he told the Philippians, whatever's noble and pure and right and lovely and admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, he said, think on those things. We go to the Old Testament book of Proverbs. Proverbs says, as a person thinks in their heart, so they are. Here's a mind shift for us, perhaps. If you just think maybe, and a lot of people do, maybe not you, but a lot of people just think if you are what you do, like for a living or for that kind of thing, if you uh, think you are defined by your circumstances, I think it's important for us to know that it, how we think determines what we become. In fact, when we look at, when I look at lessons in leadership over time that I've been taught, uh, one thing that I've definitely been taught, and man, I'll tell you what, this is really, or at least I think where it made sense to me most, was uh, this lesson being taught in the church world. And that is, and it's true in all of our lives, don't go and try to copy somebody that you respect or admire or you want to be like, right? Because you don't have the same gifts or talents or calling as those other people do. What you, what you don't want is to just be a copy of somebody else, but what you do want is to find out how they think. Learn how they process information. Find out what things influence them. Don't copy what they do, but learn to think like they think. Then if you can think like they think, right, you can do on your own what God has called you to do. Now, for Paul, in our letter here, everything is about Jesus, right? And we even recall from last week, he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain, right? He's saying, don't just think like each other, but I want you to do is think like Christ does. He says in other places, I want you to have the mind of Christ. Now, why is this so important? Again, I'm trying to argue this point that as you think, you will become. So if you look at the way that Jesus lived his life, you'll probably think, right? I could never, I could never live like that. I could never be as loving as Christ is. I could never be as forgiving as Christ is. I could never be as generous as Christ is. I could obviously never be as full of grace as Christ is. I could never please God the way that Christ does. Well, let's do a mind shift. What goes on in the mind happens in our actions. Okay? That might be true. You may not become Jesus of Nazareth. But if you think like Jesus thought, then you can live like Jesus lives. Right? If you think like Jesus thought, empowered by the Spirit of God, you can live like he lived. Now, how does, so that begs the question. So how does Jesus think? Remember, getting into the mind for our actions. How does Jesus think? Well, I think Scripture would argue for us like unequivocally that 
beyond a shadow of a, doubt, of a doubt, if you look at the way he taught and the way he lived, Jesus concerned himself about pleasing God and loving other people. Jesus concerned his mind with pleasing God and loving other people. In fact, we know this because when they asked him, Jesus, what's the most important command? He says to love your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. That's how Jesus thought. And the closer you can get to that thinking, the closer you can get to living Christ-likeness. I don't know if that's a word. He was all about pleasing God, and Paul was all about teaching this principle. If you're like-minded, if you think like the world thinks, right, you're doomed. But if you allow your mind to be renewed, if you allow your mind to be transformed, renewing your mind, you can think like Jesus. And as a result of thinking like Jesus, you can live like Jesus. So here's what the way Paul teaches this concept. Verse 3 Verse 3, Paul says, do nothing. Okay, the Greek word for nothing means nothing. Zero. It's the lack of anything, right? There's another Greek translation that's awesome. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, right? (laughs) And I don't know about you, but this one really hits me because I'm honest enough to say the truth is that there's just about everything I do that is in some way out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. And Paul says, no, you got to change your thinking, right? Do nothing, do not a thing out of selfishness. But, Paul says, but in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Now, the Greek word there translated as humility, that's, this is the word. The humility word is the word I can't even, I can't even write it down. Uh, It means modesty. It also means a lowliness of mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility of mind. In other words, saying, I choose in my mind. In my mind, the way I think of myself in this world, with other people, in my relationships, I choose in my mind to position myself Lower than others to please God and to love other people. Don't put yourself lowly in your mind so that you can become codependent and you can be taken advantage of. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the concept of I'm not going to allow my pride to get in the way of how I please God and I love other people. Right? It's our attitude. Each of you, Paul says, each of you should look not only to your own interest, but also to the interests of others. An attitude, and we, we just talked about this not that long ago. Up there, attitude is a little thing that makes a big difference, massive difference in our lives. Our attitudes the little thing that can change the trajectory of our lives. Now, there's lots of good things about having a positive attitude. And whenever you think 
I'm talking about positive attitude. You think I'm thinking, have a positive attitude, and I am, but that's not just all I'm saying. But first, you're right. It is very, very good to have positive attitude. He might not have been the brightest, brightest crayon in the box, right? He might have graduated in the lower half of your class in high school, and you might think, you know what, I'm not, I'm not very smart. Maybe I'm a little slow, right? Or you might say, I graduated in the half that made the upper half possible, right? Different attitude. It reminds me of one of my favorite comedians is this guy named Jerry Clower. And Jerry Clower tells this story about a young boy who is out in the backyard and he's playing baseball. And I don't know if you guys ever experienced, if you ever did this, this, I did this a lot, right? Um, you didn't have other people to play baseball with. So you'd invent the scenario, bottom of the ninth, two outs, and you throw the ball up and you pretend like that's the pitch and you hit it, right? So the boy's doing this, throws the ball up. I'm the greatest hitter in the world, takes a swing, strike one, right? Okay, that's okay. A little more pressure, but that's okay. Pressure makes diamonds. Throws the ball up, right? I'm the greatest hitter in the world. Strike two. It's okay, it just makes it better for television, right? I'm the greatest hitter in the world. Bottom of the ninth, I'm going to hit the Grand Slam home run. Throws the ball up in the air. Strike three. And the boy looked up to the sky and said, gosh, what a pitcher. Okay. Talking about how our attitudes can make a big difference in our lives, Right? And our attitude, we could say, is our mental habits. It's our habits of thought. Our attitude is a result of thoughts that we have trained our brain to think. Right? And we know that habits are acquired. We create habits. We create good habits. And we can create poor habits. We can create good habits of thought. We can create bad habits habits of thought. The truth of the matter is, just like if you want to lose weight, you got to burn more calories than you consume, and it's just as simple as that, right? An action repeated becomes a habit formed. No. An action repeated becomes a habit formed. That, that is something we observe. Right? Do not become conformed to the patterns of the world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, like I'd said earlier, as we talk about attitude, remember, yes, uh, I want you, Paul wants you to have a positive attitude. But Paul didn't just say to have a positive attitude. That's actually not what he's trying to preach to us. This is important. Yes, we should have a positive attitude. attitude but what he says we should have is a Christ-like attitude. Our attitude shouldn't just be positive. Our attitudes should become like that of Christ. Verse 5, this is exactly what Paul says. Your attitude should be that as the same of Christ Jesus. Now, before we go on with verse 6, I do want to show you something that's a little bit cool and if you're looking at a Bible, I don't know what version you have. I do know, I think, the one you have that's a revised standard version. It's not going to show this. because, uh, but, but yours might. 
And that is when we get to verse, I think it's six. Six, can you guys see how it's a little bit offset? Like it looks like a poem or something? Yeah. Now, yours, like I said, I think you, that black Bible you have right there, I think that's a revised standard edition. And it doesn't show that. But let me tell you one thing as far as translations go. Uh, is if it doesn't show up like kind of offset like this, then it means that the translation doesn't think it, that the text is necessarily anything special or different. If it does show off, if it does show offset, then that means that translation does think there's something different about the te- this part of the text versus the other part of the text. That's why it looks different. It's set apart for a reason. And what, I just thought you guys might think this is cool. A lot of scholars, uh, well, there are scholars that think, just like the scholars who did the Revised Standard Version, that this portion of Scripture was written by Paul. There's nothing special about it, and it's just like every other part of the letter. It's why it's not off-written. They're offset. There are other biblical scholars that think, no, actually what this is, is either a very, very early, perhaps one of the original Christian hymns or poems. This is probably something that Paul didn't write but has included in his letter to use as an illustration and it would also be something that the other Christians would recognize. How and why? Because probably they're either repeating part of this on Sunday or they're singing this. This is the same concept as praise God from whom all blessings flow. Same deal, okay? This is, they did this thing. Now, what's neat is, remember where Paul's at. He's in prison. Paul's singing a hymn. That's a pretty image to me. Anyway, let's look at that text that a lot of biblical scholars, scholars think has some early church history significance. And I happen to just think that's, it's, I just, it's more fun to think of it that way. So that's the way I'm going to think of it. Let's look at this early hymn. Verse 6, who, Christ Jesus, who, Christ Jesus, being in the very nature, God, being in the very nature, God, did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped. Again, I'm uh, coming from the NIV. Your word's going to be a little bit different in, in its definition, but that's the, that's the definition I'm going with. But he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. Okay, now let's, let's have a mind shift here. Because so often in this world, what we think about is us, right? I've got to throw myself out there. I've got to be great. I've got to promote myself. If I don't promote myself, nobody will. It's all about my Facebook followers. It's all about my Twitter followers. It's all about my Insta, whatever it might be. I've got to be a self-promoter, right? Here's a mind shift in the kingdom of God that Jesus shows us. Pleasing God is not about self-promotion, but about self-abandonment. Pleasing God is not about self-promotion. It's about self-abandonment. Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. In the word Greek, that word grasps, grasp, 
means to rob or plunder. It means to grab and take. Okay? Equality with God is not something that we can grasp. Although that's what Lucifer tries to do in the Hebrew Testament, right? In the Old Testament, it's recorded five different times where Lucifer basically said, I will be like God. I want to be like God. I want to be equal to God. In the garden, when the serpent came, that's how the serpent tempted Adam and Eve. Hey, you can be like God. No. Equality with God cannot be grasped. It's not about self-promotion. It's about self-abandonment. He said, I will basically, I'm sorry. Um, it's not, uh, so we lose our life, Paul says. We lose our life to find Christ's life in us. We must let go of our desires, our will, our self-promotion. We must abandon those things. And when we do, we'll find Christ there. The text goes on to say he didn't consider equality with God as something to be grasped, but Jesus made himself nothing. Think about this for a moment, guys. Jesus, who had every right, who, who was God, is God, all glory in heaven, stripped himself of everything to become a servant to whom? To the ones who have sinned against him. He was the one. I mean, capital O in E. He was the one who had every right to be praised. And yet, he was the one who kneeled down and washed the feet of the lowest of the low. Christ, through his example, through his words and through his actions humbled himself to mankind. Now, when God created the world, what did God create the world out of? Nothing. So as long as you're nothing, God can make something out of you. Oh, wow, that's pretty cool. Right? As long as you can think of yourself as nothing, that's just the stuff God needs to make something. When we start to think of ourselves as something, then we're at risk for failing to, to meet God's divine plan and call for our lives. Jesus made himself no, nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant. Now, if you look over uh, verse 1, whenever Paul introduces himself to the people, this is my little bit of literary criticism about what we think this line or this uh, absence can actually tell us about what Paul and Philippians' relationship must have been like. Uh, when Paul introduces himself to the people in Philippi, it's the only epistle, it's the only letter that Paul wrote to the other churches where he didn't introduce himself as an apostle. It's the only one where Paul doesn't identify himself as an apostle. That's a title of authority, right, of divine commission. Instead, Paul uses a Greek word, doulos. 
Doulos means servant, or it means slave. He said, I kneel down, I am here to serve God and to serve you. In fact, doulos, it's also when Jesus is called a servant, that word doulos is being used. In Greek, doulos uh, has the idea of someone who is permanently devoted to do the will of another person. Okay? Permanently devoted, forever. Jesus made himself nothing so that he could be a doulos. He could be completely and permanently devoted to the will of God, the one who sent him. And that's a mind shift that each of us need to have. Remember, we're trying to get in the mind of Christ so that if we can think like Christ, we can live like Christ. This is how Jesus is thinking. And it's not, hey, look at me, look how cool I am, right? No, it's self-abandonment. It's I lose my life so that I can find my life, right? And, and this comes down to a word or a phrase, rather, maybe you've heard before. Um, I know we say it a lot. I know other churches say it a lot. I do believe it's true. I wish we lived it out a little bit more. But serving is not what I do. A servant is who I am. And if we live that, that's a mind shift. Suddenly, we begin looking at things completely differently when we actually embrace that serving is not what I do. A servant is who I am. And suddenly, we'll start to see ourselves a reflection of who we really are. The problem is that we often want other people to serve us. Mainly, it's because in the end, we say words like, I'm, I'm a servant. That's who I am. But the truth is, we're not really committed to being full-on servants. Right? Jesus said, I didn't come to serve others. Sorry, I didn't come to be served by others. I came to serve others. I came to serve. I am a servant. Okay, so how does he serve? Verses 8 through 11. Some of the most important texts, I think, of all of Scripture. It comes right from this beautiful hymn, beautiful poem, whatever this might be. And being found in the appearance of a man, Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to death, the chief act of service in the history of the world, friends. Even death on a cross. So as a result of that self-abandonment, as a result of that laying down of one's life, as, as a result of being a doulos, one permanently, permanently desiring to do the will of God, what did God then do in response? Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's what Jesus did. He didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a doulos, one totally devoted to the will of another. Now, I want you to think about this, right? Think about this concept. I'd like to just kind of uh, shoot some well-known verses uh, that come to us from the book of Philippians. I want you to ask yourself, how could Paul, who's chained to a 24-hour rotation of Roman soldier guards as he's waiting trial, 
to determine honestly, guys, literally the fate of his life, knowing one day that they could very full well come back and say, Paul, you've been found guilty and your life is over and it's time now for you to be executed. How could Paul say something so intensely and insanely beautiful as to live as Christ and to die as gain? How could he say, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may do the will of God? How could he say, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord? How can he say, while under arrest, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything with prayer and petition, make your requests known to God and the peace of God, which transcends all human understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. How could he say that? Well, if you think like Jesus thought, you can live like Jesus lived. Mind shift. It's not about me, it's about God. Serving's not what I do, but I'm really going to live this out. Servant is who I am. Pleasing God is itself promotion, itself abandonment. One final shift in our mind here as we come around the back uh, stretch. There are all these reasons, like I've tried to explain, that Paul, in his current circumstances, could be miserable. Right? And there's all of the same kind of reasons we could be miserable as well. I don't have this or that in my life. This or that in my life isn't fair. I wish life were different in this or that area. Why didn't God answer my prayer on this? Or that. I deserve more than this. Not fair. On and on and on. How could I be happy in a world this bad? How could I be joyful when life isn't the way I want it to go? Mind shift. My joy is not based on what happens to me, but what God is doing in and through me. My joy, changing our minds, changing the way we live. Changing our minds to believe my joy is not based on, on what happens to me, but what God is doing in and through me. Last week, we looked at Paul, at these circumstances Paul was in, and how did he rationalize it? He says to us, this happened to me because I'm advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not, it's not what's happening to me, it's what God's doing in and through me. And that's why in the middle of house arrest, in a Roman prison, Paul could write such a beautiful letter and he could say, even though he understood that they might execute him, uh, but even if I'm poured out like a drink offering. In other words, even if this costs me everything, even if I spill my blood for Jesus, which, friends, if you don't know how the story ends, that's exactly what Paul would do. Even if I'm poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I'm glad and I will rejoice with all of you. I'm glad because you know what? It's not about me. It's about Jesus. It's never been about me. It's always been about him. And if I could think like Jesus thought, I can live like Jesus lived. Because it's not about me. It's not about self-promotion. It's about getting rid of all that stuff. It's about making myself empty so that I can have the room for Christ to reside in me. I lose my life, and when I lose that life, that life of selfishness, that life of greed, that life of vain conceit, whenever I lose all of those things, I find my eternal peace 
as Christ comes and replaces the old me. And that's what gives us the joy and the confidence, like Paul, to say, you can lock me up, but you can't shut me up. And I'm here to glorify God until the day I die, no matter how that happens. And I pray that through the power of the word of God this evening, that this can change our perspective, that we can and true, truly have mind shifts. And when we see things from a different way, we would live differently, that we might bring about more glory and honor to God. Are there any questions at all? Thanks, guys. You know, I, I said this last week. It, it can't be ignored that the concept of what Paul is teaching the Philippians and us here is it really is as simple as changing our minds. And if we can change our minds and we can have Christ attitudes, we can have Christ lives. But that sounds so simple, but it's so hard to do. That's why I think these are the types of lessons that we, in the faith, that we really want to be the the, as the best Christians we can be by being as close to God as we can be. These are the types of lessons that we need to hear over and over and over again. Because it's the ones that seem so simple to us on our face. Change, change the way you think and change the way you live. It sounds so simple, and yet it's so complex. It's something that we just can't leave too far from our daily minds or we'll find ourselves in the wilderness. Anyway, something to think about. Hey friend, I hope you'll join us for part three next week and until then, be blessed.